Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. So today we're going to talk about the most important question that every single person has to deal with, and that is the question of who is Jesus, all right? I know every week we talk about Jesus, but today, like, we're looking directly at the person of Jesus, and I need every single person, whether you've been in church your whole life or maybe today is your first day, you need to come to this with, with an open mind of going, okay, I need, to, I need to determine for myself who Jesus is, okay? Everybody has to deal with that. Um, virtually every single historian and scholar throughout history agrees that Jesus was an actual person that really existed in Israel some 2,000 years ago, all right? Virtually every, every single person. If you, if you find somebody that just says, yeah, I don't even think Jesus even existed, they're an outlier, okay? That's, a, that's an oddball type of uh, argument. Most people agree that Jesus actually existed. And because that's true, then you have to determine what does that mean for me? Because Jesus made some serious claims, right? And so throughout history, people have been trying to deal with that question, who is Jesus? And why does it matter, right? And so other world religions even have to deal with who Jesus is. This isn't just a Christianity thing that talks about Jesus. Everybody has to figure out who Jesus is. Most people though, if they don't believe him to be God and savior like we do, um, they would say that Jesus is a good guy, a prophet, a good teacher, something like that. Maybe somebody who uh, is worth modeling your life after, but, but probably nothing more than that. That's what most of our culture, most of the world would say if they're not a follower of Jesus. The problem is, is Jesus didn't leave that option on the table. <laughs> Just for him to be a good guy or a good teacher or a good role model, something like that, Jesus didn't leave that option available. There's a, there's a way of thinking, it's called the trilemma, and C.S. Lewis really made it famous, but other thinkers before him, they, they talked about it before he did, but this is what C.S. Lewis says whenever it comes to the claims that Jesus made, right? Jesus claimed to be God, he claimed to have power over death and sin and evil and all those kind of things, and so C.S. Lewis goes, if he said those things and they're not true, he can't be a good guy. Right? Does that make sense? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. I want want you to see this quote. It's out of his book, Mere Christianity. He says it this way. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away, uh, come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what Lewis is saying is he can't make the claims that he made and still be a good guy. Either he's God or he's a liar or a lunatic. There's really no in between, all right? So that is the argument that he makes, and that's the one I'm going to put before us today because I think the text really follows that. 
And we're going to see that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. But every single person has to decide and come to a conclusion for themselves, right? So that's what we're talking about. Before we look at that, and I know that that's kind of weighty, right? I'd love for us to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us and reveal himself to us. So I'll pray for all of us, and you pray for yourself. Just in this moment, ask God to speak to you. Let's pray together. God, we're asking right now, just very simply, that you would reveal Jesus to us. God, would you remove me from the equation completely, and would you speak through your spirit and through your word? Help us to see Jesus as the Lord, as king, as master, as the one that we submit and yield our life to this morning, and help us to follow. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so if you remember, uh, last week we were talking about Jesus, and he was uh, drawing a crowd a big crowd. I talked about how Jesus was a rock star at this moment, and, and he's healing people, he's preaching, he's casting out demons, he's doing all of these different things, and crowds were literally at his doorstep where he couldn't even move. We're going to see that in our text as we we're about to pick up in verse 20, that these crowds were just coming in on Jesus. But what we also see in this text is that in the crowd, there was various different opinions on who Jesus was, okay? And so we'll, we'll look at that together as well. Start in verse 20 of chapter 3 with me. It says, Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family, that's Jesus's family, heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebul and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he, Jesus, summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Verse 28, truly I tell you, People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So we're gonna walk through this text, right? And, and, and really, Lewis lays out an outline for us here, that the trilemma uh, outline of Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord, and that's what we see here in this passage. Mark shows us in the midst of the crowd what people thought about him. And first we see his family. And his family said, he's crazy. He's crazy. Verse 21 says he is out of his mind. This is his own family saying this. His, his mother, his brothers and sisters are, are there. We see them in verse 31 in just a second. And they're, they're saying he, he's lost it completely. How many of you have a brother or sister? Would you just raise your hand? Most of us, right? Most every single one of us. So you know how siblings like to fight with one another. Sibling rivalry, right? You, you fight, you pick at one another, you have competition, you have jealousy with one another. I remember I have, I have a sister. She's, she's four years younger than me. And as we were growing up, every day after school, we would come home and we would get an after-school snack, right? And our after-school snack of choice most days was sour cream and onion chips. Those things are awesome. Love them, right? 
so we would come home and we, we would get out the chips and we would have those. And, and uh, as her older brother, I would convince her, you know the little brown chips that are like the burnt ones? Nobody wants those, right? They're like left in the fryer too long or something. I don't know. Um, I would convince her as her older brother that those little brown chips actually tasted like chocolate chips. And so she should trade me her biggest, nicest sour cream and onion chip for my little burnt brown one. And she would do it every single time, right? Because I'm older and I'm wiser. I'm the smarter brother. Right? Actually, she's got a PhD now and is a professor, so I can't, I can't say that much longer. But that's what brothers and sisters do. They fight with one another. I caught my kids doing that exact same thing uh, at the kitchen table just this weekend. I mean, it's what brothers and sisters do. So imagine if your brother was actually perfect. <laughs> like he's mom's favorite. He's abnormally perfect. Like he's kind of odd because of it. He's different than the rest. Like that's annoying, right? You'd be annoyed by that. You certainly wouldn't think he's God, right? And that's what Jesus' brothers thought as well. John chapter seven, verse five tells us that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. And so here in Mark chapter three, He's drawing crowds, he's, he's doing these miracles, he's healing people, casting out demons, and his brothers and his sisters go, he's crazy. He's lost his mind, he's gone too far. Like I imagine the family all having dinner over at Mary's house, and they start to talk about how life is going and, and whatnot, and, and finally they're just like, you know what, there's an elephant in the room, let's address it. Have y'all heard what Jesus is out there doing? Like he, he's gone crazy, he, he's, he's, he's saying he's God, he's, he's healing people. We need to go and get him, right? And actually, the word that they use, it says they need to go restrain him. That's the word arrest. We need to arrest him. Why? Well, they were probably embarrassed by him. <laughs> and they thought that he was going to bring some embarrassment on the family. They were also worried about the cultural ramifications. You know, in Jewish culture, um, you can get kicked out of the temple. You can get kicked out of society very easily. And, and one, of the, one of the boys claiming to be God is certainly grounds to get kicked out. So they're worried about the personal implications of it. But then I also think they're probably just worried that their brother's going to mess around and get himself killed. How would he get himself killed? Well, like I said, he was claiming to be God. And that's a big deal, right? It's a crazy thing to do as well claiming to be God. Throughout history, people have claimed to be God. Crazy people have claimed to be God, right? Guys like David Koresh and Charles Manson claim to be God. We know that they're actually psychopaths. I heard a preacher tell a story about a man in a psych ward who he was laying in his bunk and he just was continually laying there just saying, I am George Washington. I am George Washington. I am George Washington. And his roommate said, who told you that? The man said, God did. And his roommate said, oh, no, I didn't, <laughs> right? <laughs> People think that they're God and they're crazy. And that's what C.S. Lewis is saying here. He's like, it's a crazy thing to say that you're God if you're not, right? C.S. Lewis says, if you claim to be God but you aren't, you're a lunatic on the level as someone who claims to be a poached egg. So claiming to be a God is a crazy thing to do unless it's true. And that's what Jesus was doing. In Mark chapter two, Jesus claims to be God. And in verse five, it says, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That's something only God can do. And when he does that, it makes people extremely mad to the point that they say, we need to kill this guy, right? 
So Jesus was very clearly, and they understood the message in that moment, claiming to be God. And the thing about it is, is throughout his ministry, he's proving it over and over and over again that he is God. That's what all the miracles and the casting out of demons was doing. That's what, I mean, he's proving to people that he, that he is God, and even the demons seem to understand his message loud and clear, and they understand he's not crazy. He is who he says he is. In Mark chapter three, verse 11, just a few verses before our text this morning, it says, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, so after Jesus throws the demons out of people, it says, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. So Jesus is claiming to be God. The demons even recognize that he's God, but his family is saying he's crazy. He's out of his mind. So that's what they were saying. And then the religious leaders, we see what they were saying. They show up and they say something even worse than he's crazy. They say that he is a liar, that he's a, he's a fraud, that he's evil, right? That he's evil. Verse 22 says the scribes, that is the Pharisees, the religious people, okay? The religious people. They'd come down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, which that word means literally Lord of the house or Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung pile. Essentially, he's the Lord of the house. Jesus is gonna tell us that that's speaking directly of Satan, all right? That's, that's the word that they would use for Satan. And here's what they said. He's possessed by Satan and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. It's interesting that they don't deny that Jesus is casting out demons. They can't deny that. Everybody's seeing it. So instead, they try to, de try to deny how he's doing it. And they try and say, he's evil. He's sinister. He's working with Satan is essentially what they were saying. Why would they say that? Well, here's the religious people. Their motive is self-preservation. They're looking after themselves. They don't want to admit that Jesus is God because that challenges their authority, right? So the best that they can come up with is, is uh, it's brilliant, really, uh, being sarcastic. They're saying he's casting out demons because he is a demon or because he is Satan. And Jesus says, that's, that's a weird argument. That's, 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 a, that's a poor argument. And there's some important context that you need to know. They're saying he's casting out demons by the power of demons right after Jesus just cast out a demon. <laughs> so Matthew uh, chapter 12 is a parallel passage to Mark chapter three. And Matthew gives us that detail. He says in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, then a demon possessed man who was blind and un unable to speak was brought to him. Jesus healed him so that the man could both speak and see. You can't deny that kind of a thing, right? Jesus did it right in front of him. And verse 23 says, all the crowds were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So their argument is terrible. It's ridiculous. Jesus just cast out this demon out of this guy who's never been able to speak or see. He, he cast the demon out and now this man is healed right in front of their eyes. And so their argument is poor. Jesus calls them for it. It says he summons them and he begins to lay the smack down on them in verse 23. Says he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. Says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. 
And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Jesus begins to speak in parables here, which he does a lot, but only three times in Mark's gospel. Um, he, He begins to speak in parables to essentially say, so the best that you can come up with is that I'm Satan working against Satan. That doesn't make any sense, right? He uses this example uh, or this imagery of a house divided. House divided. You've all seen the license plates, right? Of the, of the house divided license plates. It has two teams on both sides, right? Here would be Arkansas and probably LSU. Is that right? Is that the big rival? Um, where I'm from, it's Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, right? OU and OSU. So whenever I was a teenager growing up, I was a huge Oklahoma State fan. I wanted to go to school there. I I, I loved Oklahoma State football and basketball, and that was my team. Well, whenever I was a junior in high school, I started dating uh, Abby, who's now my wife, and she was a massive OU fan. I mean, I know that if you know her, you know that she's quiet and all that, but like when it comes to her football, she goes crazy. She'll jump up on the couch and scream and scare the dog and all that kind of stuff. So she's passionate about her OU football. And so I just knew, like, the writing's on the wall. If I want to be with this girl, (laughs) I'm going to have to change teams, you know, Uh, because it's a a house divided cannot stand, right? And so I became an OU fan, and it's been, it's worked out well because OU likes to win, and Oklahoma State doesn't, you know, so, (laughs) so it's worked out well. But that's the house divided imagery, right? You understand that. In 1858, another guy used this same imagery, um, and and he, he gave a famous speech. He actually stole it from Jesus, guy named Abraham Lincoln. After he accepted the, the Republican nomination, uh, he gave a speech, and it's a house-divided speech, and in, in that he says this, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this nation's government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. It will become all one thing or all the other. And three years later, Abraham Lincoln is the president and the House of America collapsed under the weight of division and civil war. He was right, and so was Jesus, right? That's the picture, that house divided can't stand. And so the subpoint, I think the application there for us, it, it is true, like in your homes and in your church, like we must be united and together a house that's divided will fall. But the point Jesus is making here is to say, I'm not on the same team with Satan. Like, if if I'm with Satan, that house is going to fall. So your argument comes up short, essentially, is what he's saying. He says in verse 26, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand but is finished. Instead, verse 27, he says, I'm against Satan. He is the strong man of this house. Remember, Beelzebub means uh, Lord of the house. So he's the strong man of this house, but... Jesus is saying, I'm stronger. I come into his house, I tie him up, and then I steal all of his possessions, right? Think of all the demon possessions that Jesus is freeing people from. This is why Jesus came. I told you in week one that Jesus came to straight kick in the teeth of Satan. Genesis 3.15 tells us that Jesus was coming. He's the coming promised Messiah who would come and crush the head of Satan once and for all. That is why Jesus came. He came to defeat Satan, defeat sin, defeat death for you and me, right? And here we clearly see Jesus is saying, I'm not with him. We are against each other and I'm stronger. 
and I tie him up and I free all of those in his possession, right? See, Satan is, is known as the father of lies, John 8, 44. Jesus calls himself in John 14, 6, the truth. He is not a liar. He says he has power over Satan and he does. And that's what we see as, as he keeps going there in, in verse 28. Jesus is, is God and the miracles that he is doing is, is through the power of the spirit. It's not through the power of Satan. Jesus is making that explicitly clear that the spirit of God is the one empowering him to do all of the things that he was doing. That's the context of this unforgivable sin moment. Like the infamous, I know that you've heard of the unforgivable sin, it's right here. Um, in verses 28 through, through 30. Jesus is saying, you're rejecting the work of the Spirit by giving Satan credit for my work, okay? So that's the context of it. People worry about you know, the unforgivable sin and worry like, have I done it? <laughs> have I somehow, like, without even knowing maybe, committed or done the unforgivable sin? And here's what I would say. The only way that you can commit the unforgivable sin today is if you reject the work of the Spirit drawing you to Jesus towards salvation and forgiveness. That's the only way that you can commit the unforgivable sin is if you reject the forgiveness that the Spirit is drawing you into. So if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you know him as Lord and as King, listen, he forgives you endlessly. Past, present, and future sin, there's, there's nothing unforgivable for you. So you don't have to worry about that if you're a follower of his. So we've seen that, that they're saying that Jesus is a crazy person or that maybe he's a liar or an evil person. There is a third option and that, it's, that is that he is Lord. That he's Lord. Look at verse 31 with me. You remember up in verse 21, it says, when Jesus' family heard this, they, they set out to restrain him. Now look at verse 31. They're, they're here. They've come to the crowded house. Verse 31 says, his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother, is, is my brother and sister and mother. I know that that's kind of confusing because it almost seems like Jesus is anti-family, doesn't it? Like that he's anti-blood family and he doesn't care about his mom who's standing outside. That's not, that's not what's happening. We know that Jesus deeply loved his mom. If you remember on the cross, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's dying. And one of the last things that he does is he looks down and he sees his mom and he makes sure that she's cared for after he's gone. You remember that? We're gonna see in just a moment that Jesus also cares about his brothers, but Jesus is not anti-family. He's painting a picture. This is the way Jewish teachers would do. They would use hyperbole or extremes to, to paint a real picture. It's the same as whenever Jesus says, whoever doesn't hate his father and mother cannot come after me. Jesus didn't literally mean that. Scripture tells us we're to honor our father and mother, Right? So he didn't literally mean that, but he's saying, listen, you can't, you can't choose them over me, okay? So the same thing has happened here. Jesus is not anti-blood family. He's showing us 
what real family is. Like he's redefining the family for us. And the re- redesigned family, the redefined family that, that we see are those who profess Jesus as Lord and actually do what he says to do. That's what, that's what the verse says. Verse 35, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. It's those who profess him as Lord, which means master, king. I'm gonna bow before you. Whatever you say goes. Those are the people that he says are his real family. And so back to C.S. Lewis, he says, he says Jesus is one of three things. He's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord, Right? Look, Jesus claimed to be God. And if that's not true, then he is insane. Lewis would say he's on the level of someone who would, who would call himself a poached egg. <laughs> if, he's, if he claims to be God and he's not, then, then he's insane. He also claimed, Jesus claimed to have power over the devil or over Satan. And if that's not true, then he is on that same level. He's evil as well. But Jesus proved those claims to be true. And the way that he ultimately proved those claims to be true, that he is God and that he has power over sin and death forever, the way that he ultimately proved that is through his death and his resurrection. Whenever they put him on a cross and they kill him as the sacrifice that your sin and mine demands, they they shed his blood, he gives up his own life, he lays down his life for us. They put him in a tomb, three days later he actually comes out of that thing alive. And when he does, he proves this claim that he actually is God, that he actually does have power over sin and death forever, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate stamp that Jesus is, is Lord. And it's that reality of his death and his resurrection that actually changes the minds of his family. The ones up in verse 21 who said he's out of his mind, he's crazy, we need to go get him, we need to arrest him. Something changes in them. I told you, John 7, 5 blatantly says that his brothers didn't believe in him. But after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, right? Jesus has, has, has risen from the dead. He's revealed himself for a number of days, and then he ascends into heaven right in front of their eyes. Acts 1.14 gives us a picture into the people who are left there, the believers who are left there in the upper room praying together. And Acts 1.14 says this, they were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So his brothers go from being unbelievers in John chapter seven, verse five, to now in Acts chapter one, verse 14. They're believers. They are there with the group of people praying alongside, continually united in prayer, it says. So what's happened? They didn't believe and now they do. Here's what changed everything. They saw their crazy brother get killed and then come back to life. And that was a game changer. It was a game changer. Mark chapter six, verse three tells us some of the names of his half brothers and and two of them actually wrote books that you have in your Bible, James and Jude. And both of those guys, we, we see their lives just transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. James 1, 1, this is how the brother of James introduces himself. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? He doesn't say, hey, this is James, the brother of Jesus. 
He says, I'm James' servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord, James declares, and I'm just his servant. Jude, his brother, introduces himself in the same way. Jude 1.1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So something shifted in these guys. They went from going, he's crazy, to now he's Lord and I'm his servant. It was the death and resurrection that changed everything for them. Church history tells us that James stayed in Jerusalem, became the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. I like to think of him as the pastor of First Baptist Church, Jerusalem, right? There was no Baptist churches at that time, but he was the pastor there in Jerusalem. And he's preaching and he's proclaiming the good news of his brother. He's preaching and he's proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, that he died, that he rose again, that he is God, that he ascended to the Father, that he's coming back one day and all those who place their trust and faith in him will not be cast into hell but will be uh, with him for all of eternity. That's what James was, was preaching. And the same guys who wanted Jesus dead now want James dead. Church history tells us that Pharisees came. They took James up on top of the temple there in Jerusalem, and they shoved him off. And whenever he hit the ground, somehow he, he didn't die. Instead, he was somehow able to crawl up onto his knees, and he began to pray, Father, forgive them, just like his big brother did on the cross. And the Pharisees come, and they start to stone him. And then one sneaks up behind him and hits his head with a club and kills him. The other brother of Jesus, Jude, he was clubbed and he was sawn in half. That's how the brothers of Jesus died. And so just ask yourself, would they do that if their brother was actually crazy? Would they do that if their brother was actually a liar? I don't think so. In fact, I think one of the greatest uh, facts or, or reasons that we can know that Christianity is real and what we're doing here is real and worthwhile this morning is because the spread of Christianity throughout history has come through the murder of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. They were all willing to lay down their life because they knew this stuff to be true. There's a saying that says, no one will die for what they know to be a lie. No one will die for what they know to be a lie. And so you and I can have great faith that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is Lord, he is master. And what that means for us is we submit our lives to him. We yield everything to him because if he's Lord, we're his servants. So what he tells us goes. The way he says to live, that's how we live because he's Lord. I wanna read this quote by C.S. Lewis to you one more time. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a, a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so every single one of us, it's what I said at the beginning, every single one of us needs to wrestle with this and answer it for yourself. It's the greatest question you'll ever answer. Who is Jesus? He's either a a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. Those are your options. And what I would encourage you is through the evidence that we see here is trust him as your Lord. The evidence is clear and it's compelling that he is Lord, that he is God, that he sacrificed everything on your behalf. He died a death you should have died. He rose from the dead, proving that he's God, proving that he has power over sin and death. And he offers you life. And so my encouragement to you, if you don't know him as your savior, as your Lord, and look, I'm not talking about maybe you've, you've grown up in church and you've, you've done this whole thing and as a kid you said a prayer and you were dunked in some water, but it's really not affected your life in any kind of way. That's not lordship. You've not submitted to him as your Lord. And so in this moment, I'm encouraging you, put aside your pride and trust him as your Lord and your savior. Bow before him. Just like the half brother of Jesus, James and Jude would then say, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's offered to you this morning. And you need to know, if you decide to follow him as your Lord, you might be labeled as crazy. Like the world's not gonna understand why we do the things that we do. It's kind of crazy to give up a day of your week, every week to come to church. It's even crazier to give your money to it. It's crazy to set your your life by some certain parameters from this ancient book and say, I'm gonna live this kind of way. It's kind of crazy to raise your kids in this kind of way. You might even be labeled as evil. Our world looks at our worldview and and the way that we, we understand things to be and would say, it's kind of evil to tell people how they're supposed to live, what marriage looks like, what sexuality looks like, what gender looks like. When life begins, all those kind of things, you're labeled as evil (laughs) if you follow the way of Jesus a lot of times. And here's what I would say. Following Jesus is a crazy thing to do. Following Jesus could even be labeled an evil thing to do unless he is Lord. And if he's Lord, it's the only option. And what we see here is he's not a liar. He is not a lunatic. He is Lord. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.